So tonight I'll be continuing on with a series that I've been doing uh, for quite a while now, <laughs> actually, uh, a series on the paramis, or the requisites of enlightenment. Um, these are qualities that it said that you know many, many lifetimes before the Buddha became a Buddha, uh, actually, when he made a resolve to become a Buddha, he went off and meditated to, to see what qualities one had to call forth in order to become fully awakened and in order to be able to help all beings. And so these uh, ten paramis are said to be the qualities that um, he came to see were necessary that they assist us in awakening and actually become the expressions of the awakened mind. These are the qualities of generosity, virtue, renunciation, energy, wisdom, patience, truthfulness, resolve, loving-kindness, and equanimity. And tonight I'll be speaking about equanimity. <clears throat> So first, taking a look at what the quality of equanimity is. Well, equanimity is the quality that's really going to help us tonight. If we're sitting here, we feel really hot, sticky, we feel dull in the mind. It's the quality that's going to help us to be able to stay present, to stay connected, and to not be sitting there with a niggling, nattering mind that's cursing the situation. It will help us to remain balanced, poised, centered amidst what could be unpleasant sensations. Equanimity is present when there's a strong balance in the mind, where we find that the mind is neither attracted to experience in the way of identifying, wanting to hang on to, uh, wanting to grasp onto, and it's also present when the mind is not being repelled by experience, where it's not pushing away, trying to annihilate or get rid of experience. It's where there is an evenness in the mind. The mind is impartial to whether the experience be pleasant or unpleasant. It's open, receptive to whatever is arising in our experience. It allows us to be with a continual flow of experience, a flow that maybe at times we really um, experience a lot of pleasant states. And then it shifts, and there's unpleasant experience. Or sometimes this flow can shift from one to the other very quickly. And equanimity allows us to embrace it all, not to have preference, not to be picking and choosing what we want to experience, but to be able to hold the vast array of experience that arises in our minds and body. We find that when equanimity is present, um, when things are going well, when it's pleasant experience, 
we don't get caught up in an excitement, an enthusiasm that actually starts to disconnect us. Nor do we find that when things are difficult, that we fall into states of despair. With equanimity, the mind doesn't fall into extremes. I'd like to share a a version of a teaching story that's often used with equanimity. And I think if you looked back over the different versions, it just, it adapts to fit whatever culture we live in. So this is a, a, a version of it that comes, I think, from our culture. There was a man who was unexpectedly laid off from work. A neighbor learned of this event and sadly shook his head and said, How terrible it is that you have lost your job. Perhaps, the man replied. And since the man was now unemployed, he took a walk downtown. There he bumped into an old friend who was a successful banker. And the banker offered him a job at twice the money that he had been receiving in his old job. When the neighborhood the neighbor heard this good news, he could barely contain his excitement. He said, that's fantastic. Perhaps, answered the man. And then two days later, the man was working at his new job, and he slipped, and he injured his back. He had to hobble home. The neighbor noticed him hobbling home, and when he found out about it, he said, oh, that's really an unlucky break. Perhaps, said the man. And then the next day, the man stayed at home nursing his bad back. And the bank that he had been working at was victimized by a terrifying robbery on that day. And when the neighbor read about it, he called his friend on the phone and he said, what a stroke of luck it was that you missed the robbery. The man simply replied, perhaps. And the story could go on and on and on. (laughs) Obviously, the neighbor didn't know anything about equanimity. And so when things were good, he was all filled with excitement and enthusiasm. And when things got more difficult, it was terrible. It was horrible. It was wrong. It shouldn't be that way. If we look at our own life, How are we when things go well, when we're happy with the conditions that we find ourselves in? Do we have a tendency to get carried away by excitement, enthusiasm? Not so long ago, um, a friend of mine who's an artist had an art exhibit. And I, I went to this exhibit and I saw this piece of artwork that I just loved. And so I bought it. And it was actually the very first piece of artwork I'd purchased in my life. It was the most money I'd spent on any such thing. And it was quite thrilling for me. And he came and he hung it up for me. And I was sitting there looking at this piece of artwork on the wall. And I was just so excited that I had to go and sit outside to calm down. (laughs) I couldn't sit in the same room as this piece of artwork and not be so excited. This is not equanimity. <laughs> but that's what happens when you know we get really caught up or identified with when things go well, that we get swept away by it. 
Another thing that can happen when things go well is that we can start to think, ah, this, this is good and this is the way it's always going to be. You know, we get caught up in the illusion of permanence. And as we all probably really well know, this becomes shattering when it gets destroyed, when we see that it was just a transitory experience. What are we like in our lives when things happen that we wouldn't choose to happen? You know, when things don't go the way we want them to, are we broken by it? Are we devastated? Are we, do, we, do we go into states of depression? Or do we just really get caught in aversion? It can happen that sometimes we come on retreat and, you know, it can take a lot of planning to open up the space to come on retreat. Um, it can take a lot to get the finances together, a lot to make the travel arrangements. And, you know, we might see it as really doing something we totally value in our lives. And then we get here. We're on retreat. Uh, and then, you know, actually as we're moving into our retreat space, our room, maybe we're carrying a heavy bag and we put our back out. What happens in that moment? Is your retreat destroyed? Is it devastating? Or is it just what you have to work with? Maybe you arrive here and you get a cold, toothache, whatever it might be. How does it affect you? Do you have a capacity in the mind to stay open, to know that this is just your experience in the moment? It's just what you have to work with. It could be um, things not going the way we like when, uh, you know, one morning we decide to come and sit in the hall. And there's a very beautiful energy in this hall. We probably all tasted of it. So we come down with some anticipation. And we sit down in the hall. And then suddenly, outside, there's some workmen. And they're talking really loudly. Are we at ease with it? Is it just simply hearing, hearing? Or are we struggling with our experience? Just noticing how we react when either experiences are really pleasant or unpleasant. Is there a sense of balance in the mind? Can we stay open and connected? When the mind is not caught in either trying to hold on to experience or trying to push away experience, this does enable us to stay connected. And through being able to stay connected, we can see clearly. We can see clearly because we aren't fighting with this reactivity in the mind. We aren't experiencing or seeing through all of the filters that come with reactivity. We're able to see without um, holding on to concepts or ideas of how things should be.
but can really see and experience life directly and immediately. And because we can see clearly, because there is this balance in the mind, it helps us to step into the unknown, to be able to venture into unknown territory, unknown territory that we don't have to go anywhere to find, but just in being with our experience, moment by moment, the next moment can remain unknown, unchartered territory, and that we can be at ease in moving into this. Equanimity is often likened to a mountain. And I think I got this teaching, um, sometimes we hear people talk about direct transmission or maybe mind-to-mind transmission from a teacher where you know, there's a sense of uh, a teacher being able to transmit some quality in the mind directly to another being. Well, my transmission about equanimity came to me from the mountains themselves. You know, in my own life, I always felt like the mountains were my first teacher. And it was this quality of equanimity that I experienced through being in the presence of the mountains. And being in the presence of mountains, one sees how a mountain gets inundated by all kinds of conditions. You know, that at times there be the warmth of the sunshine. At times there can be strong winds blowing. Uh, the rain can fall really heavily. Or there can be snowstorms, ice storms, hailstorms. Mountains are prone to getting struck by lightning. And the mountain is unwavering amidst all of this. It doesn't wobble. It stands steady. And this is the strength of the mind filled with equanimity, that all the storms from life can simply pass through. And the mind is unwavering, steadfast, firm, poised, balanced. I remember it so clearly from sitting on the side of a mountain and in just the course of a day to experience many of the changes that I've just spoken of. Because things change so fast on a mountain. So when we find this um, this balance in the mind, there is a great strength and unshakability. This unshakability is not rigid or fixed. Rather, it's a malleability that can open to each of these experiences. In speaking about balance, 
often when we think of balance, we can think of balance as being, you know, as if we're poised on just this razor edge of experience, and we're desperately trying to keep our balance, as if we're walking a tightrope. And yet, the balance of equanimity is really different. It's so spacious. It's so vast. It's enormous. Because it is so spacious and vast, it does help us to open to the greatest suffering that we experience in our lives. It helps us to look into the deep, dark depths of pain. It also helps us to open to the greatest joys of life, to be touched by life in so many of its different wonders. I'd like to share a few lines from a poem by Rainer Rilke from his Book of Hours. Let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final. We open to the beauty and terror because of equanimity, because it can hold it. This equanimity can do so because it is infused with wisdom, because it knows the truth that no feeling is final. It knows that all things are impermanent, that we can't hang on to anything. To do so is futile. And the knowing of this helps us to be at ease with all this change. Equanimity is infused with the quality of acceptance, a deep, deep acceptance, and for many of us, a deepening acceptance. And in speaking of this, too, there can be a misconception that this acceptance is passive, that um, it leads us to a non-responsiveness. It le- can, it, when it's not understood correctly, we think that this acceptance leads us into f- feelings of hopelessness, It's just the way things are. I can't do anything about it. Might as well live with it, which isn't filled with a uh, resonance of acceptance, has a uh, sense of aversiveness to it, pointlessness to it. You know, so there's a disconnect that happens with that type of acceptance. But the type of acceptance that equanimity has is a patient acceptance. It helps us to open to our experience because this is what's happening. This 
is the momentary truth. And we know that we can't hang on. So it allows us to open to our experience, which then allows a responsiveness rather than a reactivity from the place of acceptance and clear seeing we can respond with wisdom to life rather than being caught in our states of reactivity there's another common misconception about equanimity and that's that it is the state of indifference and sometimes in texts we'll see um, equanimity translated as having this quality of indifference. And a funny thing happened uh, just before the talk tonight. I was having a conversation with Edwin, my husband, and asked him if he wanted to go and do something, and he said he was indifferent. <laughs> then a few minutes later, he pulls out the dictionary, and he's reading to me the uh, definition of indifference. And he's reading it from the, the fact that he's just made this statement about <laughs> indifference. And I'm sitting there hearing it from the space of just having pondered indifference because I'm speaking about it tonight. And, but it, it was interesting to me because at first it said something that seemed really true about equanimity. It said there's no bias, prejudice, or preference. That there's an impartial quality. And I, you know, I heard that and I thought, yeah. Equanimity. When equanimity is present, present, we aren't pulled by our preferences or our biases, and that you know that we're not selectively choosing our experience. But then he went on to say, it's when one is disinterested, without interest or concern, not caring, and apathetic, and that equanimity is not, and thus the confusion. So. It's something to pay attention to in our own experience because actually um, it's said you know, in Brahma-vihara practice that the near enemy of equanimity is indifference because it can appear like equanimity. And so there can be a way in which you know, we're, we have this sense of nothing really rocking the boat, but there's a disconnect that's happened. There's this quality of disinterest um, there's a quality of separation or ap apathy that's present, where equanimity itself can only happen with connection. We have to be totally connected to the experience and know the experience deeply for equanimity to be present. It has a quality of full engagement. I know in my own life it really wasn't until I started meditating that I really had any sense of equanimity or any sense of all of the reaction that can be in the mind. How much push and pull there can be. You know, in my life, yeah, sometimes I was happy. Sometimes I got carried away by it. Sometimes I was angry, you know, and lashed out. 
Uh, and I could see in those moments that I wasn't equanimous. But, you know, I, I just haven't felt like I've really been a person of extremes, so maybe felt like there had been some degree of equanimity. But when I started paying careful attention to my experience, I was shocked to see just how much of the time I was pulled towards the pleasant and pushing away the unpleasant. And, you know, sometimes it almost seems like it happens on a cellular level. It's so almost minute, so fine. Um, and we see that in practice. We, we really start to see this push and this pull. And, you know, as we start to see that, not to react to it, you know, that's not going to bring about equanimity, but just rest in the seeing of it, letting equanimity being able to hold that seeing of it, that push and that pull, and just noticing how much we experience that when we go to make decisions in our lives. You know, just the other day I had this experience where I walked into my front room, and I went to sit down, and I found myself sitting in a chair that I don't normally sit in. And, you know, I was just kind of curious when I discovered that. And I thought, hmm, how did I get here? And so I kind of looked back at what had happened, or I looked around the room, and what I noticed was that every other place that I usually sit in had something else on it. And, you know, so it was just a little, I'm a lazy person, I confess. It was a little bit unpleasant to go and move whatever it was. Not that it was a big deal, but just that little bit of unpleasantness kept me from doing that. And, you know, when we look at the course of our lives, if we're all the time navigating away from that little bit of unpleasantness, what's the overall effect in our lives? It's not going to help us to open to pain. It's not going to help us to open to suffering. We'll find, you know, that we're just living a very, very narrow, sheltered life. Something that really isn't sustainable. Because we can't hide from the truth of suffering. And when we start to pay attention to this push, this pull in life, all of this reactivity in the mind, we realize how at sea we can feel. It, you know, it's if we're pushed and pulled around by the experiences of life. And it's very tiring. It's exhausting. So we can find a great freedom when we start to touch into equanimity. You know, we can experience this in different ways. We can experience freedom through not reacting to everything that comes in through the sense doors. You know, just look at your own life and, you know, how much we get caught up in the wanting of the pleasant. You know, any form of pleasant. You know, chasing after it. How much we, we just get run by this desire for pleasant experience. 
So in being here, equanimity can help us in a lot of ways. You know, here we are in a retreat center where the food is prepared for us. It means that we have to eat what's offered. If we don't have equanimity, we can suffer a great deal. It can be, you know, excruciating to go down and see dishes day after day that we don't want to eat. But if we have a balance, if we're not, you know, caught up in our preferences, it'll allow us to simply eat what is offered. It will allow us to eat from a place of wisdom where we eat simply to nourish the body and we aren't driven to stuff our faces when we like the food. We eat from a place of balance. We find equanimity when we can open to all of the vicissitudes of life with an equal mind, when we can open to pleasure and pain, loss and gain, fame and disrepute, and praise and blame. I find praise and blame the one that I look at over and over again. I think it's something that many of us commonly experience in our lives. I know as a teacher, it really happens. You know, one day a yogi is sitting there and just saying how much you've helped them and how great it's been and just singing praises. And then the next yogi might walk in and they're in a state of despair and it's my fault, you know, that I don't know, I've failed in some way. If I took it all personally, I'd be crazy. You know, it, it's, you know it's, it changes so quickly. And yet, when I can simply hear it and let it go, and not, you know, when it's praised, get I glorified? Oh yeah, I'm a really good teacher. Or when it's horrible? <laughs> Man, I better go back to school. <laughs> I didn't get this quite right. You know, we're not caught up in what's being said. You know, we can have an equal mind whether it's praise or it's blame. Equanimity is also one of the Brahma-viharas. It's a very important Brahma-vihara. You know, when we hear about the Brahma-viharas, metta, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. Metta is often the first one that's talked about, and talked about in great detail. Metta, loving-kindness, which I'll actually touch on next week, and many of us have uh, recently done some metta, loving-kindness practice. But loving-kindness wouldn't be possible without this quality of equanimity. We would never be able to love without attachment. We would always be wanting something in return for our love. We would always be wanting to gain something. So equanimity makes loving-kindness possible 
through bringing this quality of detachment to it, where we can freely love and not want something back, not wanting to gain from it, not having expectations. We can love and let go. It also enables us to open up the circle of loving-kindness. Now there can be people whom are dear to us. First of all, it helps us um, to let go of our attachment to these people. And then it also helps us to move beyond the circle of our dear friends, to become inclusive with loving-kindness, to be able to open our hearts to strangers, people we don't know, people we don't have strong feeling for, and even to be able to keep our hearts open to people who may be hostile, who say things to us that are abusive, and yet we find we can still hold these people in our hearts. It allows the loving-kindness to become all-inclusive, all-embracing, without distinction, without exclusion. A way that equanimity is often portrayed is um, through the description of parents who have children, dearly love their children, take care of their children when they're young, uh, help them in the world because they need help when they're young. They're not able to fend for themselves. They don't know what will be helpful and what's hurtful. And so a parent lovingly guides their child. And then one day the child is grown and it's time to leave home. At this point a parent can love their child wholeheartedly and yet has to let go, has to let the child then go out on their own, make their own decisions, make their own way. You know, and it isn't at that time that the parent withdraws from them, cuts off from them, but they let go of trying to control them. They may still at times have words of wisdom for them, but they let go of the expectation that this person will follow that. They know and understand that in order for the person to grow even more, they have to make their own decisions. They have to live their own life. That's the only way they will become strong. When equanimity is taught as a Brahma-vihara, there's a phrase that is used that I find very powerful. It's all beings are owners of their own karma. Their happiness or unhappiness depends upon their actions and not upon my wishes for them. 
when I was doing Brahma Vihara practice, I had been practicing for at least six weeks before I did equanimity practice. And when I heard this phrase, it was completely sobering. You know, with the metta, um, compassion, somewhat differently, but then sympathetic joy, you know, there was quite an elation in the heart. And then suddenly, in hearing this phrase, all beings are owners of their own karma. Their happiness or unhappiness depends upon their actions and not upon my wishes for them. It was like, whoa, sober up. You know, recognizing that, you know, however deeply I cared for someone else, I was not responsible for them. I could not really affect their happiness. Their happiness depended upon their own karma. I know sometimes people hear this phrase and have a reaction to it. You know, if we think of uh, small children born into poverty, children who are living uh, in an abusive environment, and we think all beings are owners of their own karma, it can seem cold and hard. And, you know, in, <coughs> excuse me, in the Buddha's teachings, when the Buddha talked about karma, he said that it was such an intricate web of conditions coming together that it was actually imponderable. And so, you know, if we look look at someone's misfortune and try to see the cause of that, it isn't a helpful way to hold karma. But where it really becomes helpful in our own experience is when we have done something that causes pain to ourselves or another, and we reflect on how we are the owners of our own karma in that our happiness or unhappiness depends on what we do. You know, it helps us to understand that all of our actions have consequences. What we do and say has consequences. And it helps us to be honest and upright with what we do and say. I had a, a really um, strong experience of this a while ago. Actually, it was last year. I was sitting in a retreat here with Sayada Upandita. And towards the end of that retreat, in a question and answer period, um, I had the, the questions were handwritten, and I'd sent in this question, and it was read out. Um, and then, I will, as the question was read, I was asked to identify myself. So I was seen who asked that question. And it wasn't a skillful question. And so when Sayada Upandita started answering the question, he started hammering on me. And as he hammered on me, I experienced states of shame, embarrassment, judgment. I felt at that time actually like my mind was pushed into equanimity because there was a spaciousness that was holding it. And then later that night, when it wasn't quite so strong and the equanimity started to recede, it was how could I come back into balance again. You know, I was really feeling, I was really hard on myself. And what I found most helpful was to reflect on these phrases, to 
to reflect on that I was the owner of my own karma and that my happiness depended on my own actions. And, you know, in that was like I could sit, ah, I have helped create this, you know, through my actions. And it helped me to just sit with whatever the consequences were, to own it, and to be able to open to it. It was very powerful for me. also said of equanimity that it assists compassion in being able to stand steady in the face of the pain. It brings the quality of fearlessness to compassion. And it helps us to have the courage to open to suffering over and over again. Equanimity is such a powerful force in the mind. It helps to give us such strength. It helps us to stay present, open, connected. In summarizing the quality of equanimity, it said of equanimity that it has the characteristic of promoting the aspect of neutrality. Its function is to see things impartially. Its manifestation is the subsiding of attraction and repulsion. And it's brought about by the reflection upon the fact that all beings inherit the results of their own karma. I'd like to say a little bit about the perfection of equanimity as it relates to the other paramis. First off, to remember that the undertaking of the paramis is the undertaking of the journey of enlightenment, not just for the sake of our own well-being, but it's undertaken for the sake of the well-being of everyone. And so without equanimity, we will never be able to open and stand steady in the face of awakening for the benefit and welfare of all beings. We find that um, dana or generosity, will never be perfected without equanimity, because If we 
don't have equanimity, we won't be able to give impartially to all beings. We'll save our generosity for those that are dear to us. With virtue, we find that without equanimity, we won't truly understand karma. We won't truly understand that which is wholesome and that which is unwholesome. Renunciation cannot be perfected without equanimity because we will always have attachment. Attachment uh, that doesn't allow us to let go, relinquish, renounce. We find that equanimity uh, to wisdom brings objectivity or detachment, which enables us to see clearly. We find that equanimity uh, enables us to keep our energy in balance, to keep it from lacking or becoming excessive. Be patient and to be accepting of how things are rather than trying to change the way things are. Resolve is empowered by equanimity. With resolve, we find that great determination to stand steady in the perfection of the paramis or the undertaking of the journey of awaking. Awakening, and equanimity brings in the ability to be steadfast in this. It empowers it. With truthfulness, we find that equanimity helps us over and over again to have the capacity to recognize momentary truths, to be able to open to whatever is arising, and to accept this as a momentary truth. We find that equanimity with loving-kindness helps us to overlook the wrongdoing of others. So finding ways to access equanimity, it actually arises organically when we practice moment-to-moment mindfulness. It's one of the things that arises in the mind when we can be with our experience moment-by-moment and have this quality of acceptance. We'll find equanimity naturally growing. At the beginning of a retreat, it's not always so evident because there is the reactivity. And so we learn to steady the mind through developing concentration, 
staying steady with concentration, this will help to strengthen the factor of equanimity. We work with strengthening equanimity by noticing when we're out of balance, by noticing when we're getting too tight in our practice, you know, maybe holding too tightly to the breath, trying too hard, and we simply open up, let the mind become more spacious, relax. If we're finding that we're too spacious, too relaxed, too open, not, not that we can be too open, but we're getting spaced out in the spaciousness, then we simply bring more balance into the mind by connecting more clearly with our experience, more precisely. <coughs> We can work with equanimity by not limiting our practice to just sitting or walking meditation, but by paying attention to everything that we do in a day, paying attention to daily activities. You know, there's no one thing in a day that we do, or w- that we do in a day that is more important than anything else. So we practice bringing this full engagement of heart-mind to any experience. We practice equanimity when the hindrances arise. Strong uh, feelings of aversion, attachment, doubt, um, restlessness, uh, sleepiness. And we simply accept that this is our experience in this moment. We open to this experience. We learn to work directly with these forces of attachment and aversion, which helps us to face our own suffering helps us to have courage to venture into the unknown. We can also work with equanimity by paying close attention to what it is that we are calling self and to see if we can give up these experiences that we so strongly identify with as belonging to ourselves. And when we can really see that they are not self, then there is no reason to cling to them, to be aversive. The bottom line of equanimity is really the mind that clings to nothing. There's no clinging with equanimity. So I'd like to, at this time, do a short guided uh, meditation that just helps to highlight this quality of equanimity. So sitting for a moment, and as you're sitting, there's a way of bringing focus to the mind 
focusing on the experience of the breath. And we can invite equanimity through accepting this breath, however it is, whether it be smooth and fluid, harsh and bumpy, erratic, constantly changing. So we begin by opening to this experience of breath just as it is. And then opening the awareness to the experience of hearing. With the experience of hearing, even though it's quite quiet, still, there's still many sounds that can be heard. Can be sounds that are distant, sounds that are near, electrical sounds. Sometimes there's internal sounds. And with all of these sounds, not picking or choosing, opening to each sound as it arises, is known, and disappears. Letting the mind be open and relaxed. Letting the mind be spacious, like the sky. The sky that contains within it the clouds, the wind, the rain, the sun. Just opening to whatever experiences arise for you. Thoughts arising, being known, disappearing. Sensations in the body arising, being known, and disappearing.
There might be mind states, joy, peace, calm. Or maybe there's aversion, frustration, disappointment. Opening to the vast array of experience. Without picking or choosing. Acceptance of all things as they arise and pass away. Things are just as they are. The mind undisturbed by changing experience. the mind unshaken by changing experience. Knowing however much we may want things to be a certain way, things are as they are. This is the wisdom of equanimity. May all beings know the wisdom of equanimity. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.